everybody. This is Pat Abendroth. Welcome to another edition of The Pactum. If I sound lonely today, it's because I am alone. I'm without my co-host, Mike Grimes. It's unfortunate, but now and then we are going to need to do some episodes that we'll call the Lone Ranger episodes. A fiery horse with the speed of light, a cloud of dust, and a hearty high silver. The Lone Ranger. I love The Lone Ranger growing up. It was one of my favorite TV shows. I didn't get to watch it very often because it was on reruns on Sunday mornings and we were typically at church. But when we were sick or playing sick, we got to watch The Lone Ranger. And I also liked being sick in the sense that it made my voice lower. So I thought I sounded like The Lone Ranger and that was super cool. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget, we are on Instagram at The Pactum Theology. We are on Twitter at The Pactum. And you can also find us on www.thepactum.org. Well, today, in today's episode, we're going to be talking about imputation. And in particular, we're going to be talking about the active obedience of Christ. I love the doctrine of the active obedience of Christ. It's something I didn't know about for the early part of my Christian life. And if you want to know what the act of obedience of Christ is actually all about in a simple way, uh, at least in my experience, it was in three words, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He's even better than I thought he was. Uh, and he's even better than many evangelicals think he is because not only did he do the great and super important act of removing our guilt or bringing us forgiveness or getting rid of our violations against God's law. He also positively upheld God's requirements. He positively upheld God's law and met the obligation for us so that we could be forgiven and we could also be seen in God's eyes as perfectly righteous so we could be justified. Jesus is better is what the act of obedience of Christ is all about when it comes to my way of thinking. A number of years ago, R.C. Sproul was asked what he should call himself or what we Bible-believing Christians should call ourselves since the word evangelical is meaningless and so many other words are confusing. And he provocatively said, imputationist. And I like it that R.C. said that. And he said that. He said, I, I want to call myself an imputationist. He said it in the context of speaking about the active obedience of Christ because it's something that he saw as vitally important. So in this episode and the next episode, because there's so much ground to cover, so this will be a two-parter bonus edition, what we're going to do is talk about the meaning of active obedience when it comes to Christ. We're going to talk about the requirement of eternal life, that God requires perfect, personal, perpetual obedience, which means we need the active obedience of Christ. We're also going to talk about biblical support for the active obedience of Christ, uh, and we'll cover those in this episode. Then in the next episode, we'll talk about historic and contemporary affirmations. We'll also talk about objections because there are some pretty big objections by some pretty influential people, unfortunately. And then finally, we'll end by talking about just what how vital this doctrine is that it's not a secondary doctrine. It's actually a critical doctrine when it, comes, when it comes to the gospel. So I hope you're ready to dig in a little bit as we think about the active obedience of Jesus Christ. When we define active obedience, we have to recognize that the Bible talks a lot about the obedience of Christ. And so it's no small thing. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 to 7. Romans chapter 5, verse 19. Just to name a few 
But thought, thoughtful theologians, as they look at the work of Christ as a whole, have found it helpful to look at it from two different angles or two different perspectives. And that's where the active and passive obedience of Christ comes in. If we think about the Latin word, passio, where we get our English word passion, we're talking about suffering. So the passive obedience of Christ is the suffering obedience of Christ. It's not that he's being passive. He was never passive in anything that he did. Um, No, it's his suffering obedience. And he suffered throughout his entire life from beginning to end and obviously culminating at the end with the suffering on the cross. And then the active obedience of Christ is in reference to the positive upholding of God's law. So he's suffering throughout his entire life. He's also obeying throughout his entire life. So both are important if we're going to have removal of guilt as well as our positive fulfillment of what God requires. Maybe let's put it in these terms. In simplest terms, the active obedience of Christ is the positive and perfect obeying of the law by Jesus on behalf of everyone who would ever believe. And as such, it's the basis for justification by faith alone. So that's what we're talking about when we're we're talking about the active and passive obedience of Christ. There is one obedience, his whole work. In a certain sense, it's inseparable. But for appreciation, dissection, uh, going into depth, we talk about the active and passive obedience of Christ. What is not meant when we're talking about the active obedience of Christ is that his death is passive or was passive uh, or that Jesus was passive in any way. Get this, chronology is not in view. And both friend and foe of the active and passive obedience of Christ have made errors here. So we're not talking about chronology. We're not saying, so he suffered his, or he obeyed his whole life, and then he suffered at the end. Uh, No, the cross is active and passive. His whole life is active and passive, and it culminates uh, with his death on the cross. His obedience culminates. His suffering culminates uh, at the cross. So even to the point of death, even death on a cross, he obeyed. So that's the main thing we really have to get in our minds. Passive refers to suffering. Active refers to upholding. This became a flashpoint during the time of the Protestant Reformation. It wasn't the first time believers had thought of the obedience of Christ in two ways, but it really became a flashpoint because the Protestants, uh, whether Reformed or Lutheran, acknowledged, affirmed, promoted that Jesus vicariously, in place of, as a substitute, paid the penalty for sin and, and, and positively fulfilled the divine law. It wasn't that Jesus obeyed in order to be qualified to be the spotless lamb of God, although that is also true. It is true he was spotless and he proved it through his life, but that's not what we're talking about here. He not only obeyed perfectly to show he was sinless, he obeyed perfectly as a substitute. And so this helps us even think through why there was uh, opposition by Rome, because if we have this, then we can have assurance. 
And so Rome uh, wrongly accused the Protestants of believing in, when they believed in justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone, some of those solas, they said that the Protestants are promoting and believing, the Reformed are promoting and believing what they called a legal fiction. Justification is legal. God declares us righteous. And Rome says that's legal fiction because he's declaring you righteous, even though you yourselves are not inherently righteous. And let's think about that. They actually would be correct if, if it were not for a substitute who is in fact absolutely righteous as the one who perfectly upheld God's law. So it's not legal fiction because we have a substitute. There's something very real that undergirds, that holds up justification sola fide by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. And that would be his real righteousness as a substitute who positively upheld God's law on behalf of everyone who would ever believe. It's not legal fiction. And this is how we can have assurance. This is why Robert Bellarmine, the arch rival to Protestantism and to the Reformed, uh, labeled it heresy to have assurance because it's not based upon anything other than you. It would look like you're just promoting your own self-righteousness. But the fact is, uh, no, we're not. We're just pointing to the righteousness of Christ. Charles Spurgeon would later say, true justification by faith is the surface soil But then imputed righteousness is the granite rock which lies beneath it or underneath it. And if you dig down through the great truth of a sinner's being justified by faith in Christ, you must inevitably come to the doctrine of the imputed righteousness of Christ as the basis and foundation on which that simple doctrine rests. In other words, we're talking about the imputation of Christ's righteousness. We're talking about the active obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. So hopefully you're tracking so far. Hopefully you'll never say his life was a life of obedience and his death was suffering. No, the whole life is suffering. The death is also obedient. The whole is the whole. So keep those things in mind, if you would, when we're talking about the doctrine of the active obedience of Christ. I'm not sure the first time I ever heard about this, uh, because I know for sure I read theological books like during seminary that talked about it positively. So whether it was reading Louis Burkhoff or John Murray, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, uh, or other books like that. So I'm thankful that I came across it, but it didn't really come to the forefront of my thinking until I learned of professors at significant seminaries, Protestant seminaries that were denying it. And then all of a sudden I realized how important it is. So let it, let it be known that the Lord uses controversy sometimes to help us to learn what is true and right. I'm even thinking of the book of Galatians. There's so many wonderful things in the book of Galatians. And if it weren't for the heresy that they were dealing with and the Apostle Paul's combating, we wouldn't learn so many of the great, positive, wonderful things. In this case, I think we're learning that Jesus is even better than we realized. He not only makes atonement for our sins, which is really important because, let me tell you something, uh, Pactum audience, Pactum nation, Pactum world, uh, Pactum people, uh, I have a lot of sin. And I have a lot of guilt because everyone does, because none is righteous, no, not one. And so we need a great Savior to not only take away our sin, though, 
God requires more than just having no sin. He actually requires perfect, personal, perpetual obedience. And that brings us to number two on our outline where we have six points on the outline. We're going to cover three in this episode. So hang in there. The second point on the outline for today is the need for active obedience, the need for active obedience. And we need it because it alone provides what God requires. And this brings us to the topic of God's law. What does God require of us according to his law? We don't have to speculate. We don't have to wonder for very long. We can just look to Jesus, for example, in Luke chapter 10. And if you want to look up Luke 10, because you're not driving or something like that, you can certainly do that. And as you're turning there, I'll make a note of the fact that many times Christians kind of brought up on the left behind series or something like that. And we will talk about dispensationalism later because the founder of dispensationalism despised the doctrine of the active obedience of Christ. And so maybe that's why so many evangelicals today, because we've been so influenced by dispensationalism, this is news to us. We've never heard of it, or we actually look at it with a frown. So, but oftentimes evangelicals influenced by dispensationalism, when they hear law, they think old covenant law and only old covenant law. And that would be a mistake. The old covenant talks about law. The new covenant talks about law. As a matter of fact, there was law before there was Mosaic law. There's always been law ever since the beginning. God has had requirements even before it was written down, before it was inscripturated. Uh, The requirement is to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love neighbor appropriately, to love neighbor as self. And this has always been God's requirement, always God's expectation, even before it was written down. And that does get us where we need to go in Luke chapter 10. So remember, oftentimes we're talking about law, but we don't mean Mosaic law. Uh, And so whether we're in the new covenant or the old covenant, there's still such a thing as law. So if Jesus is the answer, I like to say, what's the question? And the question is, God requires perfect personal, perpetual obedience, Jesus provides the answer to the question, where in the world can we get that as sons and daughters of Adam? So when we look at Luke chapter 10, we have this question, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's Luke chapter 10, verse 25. What a question that is. He's talking about eternal life. What should I do to gain eternal life? And how will Jesus answer? Well, hopefully we're on the edge of our seats waiting for him to answer. Well, the answer is in the form of a question. What is written in the law? How do you read it? Verse 26 says. So apparently it's a patently obvious answer for everyone to know. Everyone should know the answer to this question. Uh, Sure enough, the man is able to answer. He answers immediately. He answers confidently, given that the answer is so obvious. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. In verse 27, listener, is this correct? Is it what God requires for eternal life? Well, we we need not wonder. Jesus declares, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live, verse 28. And we know live has to do with eternal life according to the context. Uh, That was the whole question to begin with. It's a question about eternal life. And Jesus says, if you do this, you will have eternal life. We summarize it as in loving God perfectly with all of your faculties uh, and also loving your neighbor appropriately. 
Few things could be clearer. The requirement of God for eternal life, according to Jesus, the one who definitely knows, is obedience. It is obedience to the requirement of God, loving God and loving others. The do this and you will live standard is unmistakable. It's the unmistakable standard according to none other than Jesus. And yet it is unnervingly bizarre, to use a favorite pactum word, how many Christians are unaware that this is recorded in the Bible. What does God require for eternal life? He requires obedience to his law. And as thoughtful theologians have said, perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience, heart, soul, mind, and strength, all of your faculties, including your right motives. That's what's required for eternal life. I would encourage you before we move on talking about this to get used to that reality, to get used to even talking to people who profess to be Christians or don't profess to be Christians. What does God require? Uh, Oftentimes it's something lesser than that. And I I grant the fact that sometimes people say, well, I thought it was to believe. Well, that's actually true, but we're, we're getting the cart before the horse because the whole reason you need to believe in Jesus as your substitute is you need to be forgiven. You need to have your sins taken away. You need atonement to be made for your wrongdoing, but you also need the perfect standard to be met. And oftentimes people don't realize that a perfect standard needs to be met and therefore we can be desperate and say woe is me i am undone and how could i ever possibly meet the standard and that's exactly where we want to be it's exactly where we want people to be we want them to be able to say i can't do it and to look outside of themselves for alien righteousness not from mars but from somewhere other than ourselves to the lord jesus christ this is not only consistent uh, with what Jesus has taught, we've just seen that, but the Apostle Paul would say uh, the exact same thing in other words. So in the great letter of Romans, when the Apostle Paul is arguing, remember in one to three, he's arguing that there's none righteous, no, not one by the time he gets to chapter three, and he works through all of the different kinds of people. But as he does so in Romans chapter two, verse 13, he makes it clear that only the doers of the law are justified or can be justified or will be justified. So no, no one is going, there's no, there's no legal fiction. Uh, God would not justify anyone if it weren't based upon something. You have to be a doer of the law in order to be justified, Romans 2.13. But the sad reality is anyone who is a son or daughter of Adam is not righteous. No, not one. We don't keep God's law. We're not doers of God's law. And so we find ourselves guilty and in need of external righteousness. So we have to keep this in mind. Sadly, too many commentators, when they get to Romans chapter two, verse 13, lose their ever loving Protestant minds. And they don't read it in the flow of the argument that goes to chapter three, none righteous, no, not one. And they say, well, in essence, well, we'd better work harder. We better try harder because if we're not doers of God's law, God won't justify us. Oh, I'm thankful for thoughtful old Protestant reformed commentators like Charles Hodge, uh, who come through for the win. Uh, they, they, they come through for the win, sadly, unlike others. 
So justification requires the positive and perfect doing of the law. Apart from the positive, perfect doing of God's law, there will be no justification. You're listening to The Pactum, an episode on the active obedience of Christ. This is going to be part one. Thankful to be with you. I'm alone today, Pat Abendroth, without Mike Grimes, feeling a bit lost, feeling a bit lonely, but I think the Lord will provide and we'll make it through even though we're doing Lone Ranger episode today. Now, as we talk about God's law, I've been talking about righteousness. And it's important that we say a little bit more about that because oftentimes, even though the word righteous or righteousness or some form of it is used so many times, I would guess hundreds of times, I haven't looked it up lately, uh, in the Old Testament and New Testament, oftentimes when you ask people who are even seasoned Christians uh, what righteousness means, they don't know. Maybe they'll say holy and I'll say, okay, I understand that. That's good. You have a synonym, but it's not actually a synonym. It's complementary. Holy means different. Holy means distinct, strange even, if you will, set apart. But that's not what righteous means. Righteous actually, and I took the time to look it up. I think I looked it up in eight different high-quality, well-respected, original language, theological resources. uh, And it has to do with obedience. To be righteous means to be an adherer of law. So righteousness is adherence to law. As you might imagine, if you don't have a category for law in your theology because of something like dispensationalism, uh, and not all of them do, I'm not trying to say that, but oftentimes, especially when you have a dispensation of law which is gone, it kind of goes to the argument. But if you don't have a robust place for law in your understanding of the Bible, uh, it's no wonder that you won't know that righteousness means adherence to law, but it does. And so when we are justified, which means declared righteous, are you following me? Are you following me? When we're justified, we're declared righteous. That means we are declared adherers or upholders of God's law. We've got to understand this or we won't understand justification. Not only that, why would we ever think about Christ keeping or obeying the law for us, which is what the act of obedience of Christ is all about, if we don't realize that righteousness means adherence to law or to be righteous means to be an upholder of God's law. So think it through with me, if you would, uh, here on the pactum, think it through. Okay. Justification apart. If we don't have justification, sola fide, uh, we, we don't have the gospel. It is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. Uh, according to Luther paraphrasing there, at least, uh, Calvin, it's the hinge upon which the door of the gospel opens. Well, if we don't have imputed righteousness, the righteousness of Christ as the obedient one in place of sinners, uh, we actually don't have justification. Uh, we, it, it's hanging in midair based upon nothing, which is not a good look. It is representative obedience that we're talking about because we're talking about righteousness. And if we're talking about righteousness, we're talking about the upholding, the positive upholding of God's law. If I could convince, if I, if I could pay Christians maybe even uh, to know what the word righteous means and so they can read their Bibles better, it might actually be a good investment. Please forevermore know that to be righteous means to be an upholder of God's law. Now, again, according to 
biblical Christianity, uh, where there's none righteous, no, not one. And so we look outside of ourselves to Christ's perfect righteousness, Christ's perfect obedience on our behalf. He's the one who did this so that we might live, borrowing from Luke chapter 10. He is the one. He is the one who perfectly fulfills the law's obligations. Okay, let's progress now further. We're going to cover a third area when it comes to the active obedience of Christ, and that would be the active obedience of Christ in the Bible. Now, if you just do a quick search on your Bible program or on the internet, uh, any, any translation you'd like, you can just type in, in quotations, uh, active obedience of Christ, and you, guess what? Won't get any hits. Uh, you'll, you, you'll find it in the Bible uh, used like that, just like you'll find hypostatic union. Uh, two true theological realities uh, that are not found based upon word studies. So biblicists probably won't like this very much, uh, but they don't like Trinity either because you won't come up with any hits. Thankfully, we have blessed inconsistency. It is a biblical doctrine based upon the Bible's texts and context interpreted appropriately, but we use the label as a shorthand to explain ourselves in a quick way. So the act of obedience of Christ would be the fact that Jesus perfectly upholds the law of God on behalf of everyone who would ever believe so that there would be a basis, a foundation for justification. God declares sinners righteous. They're not righteous. According to Romans chapter four, we're ungodly as a matter of fact, but he declares sinners righteous based upon the true, genuine, authentic righteousness of Christ, Jesus, who upheld, who kept God's perfect law on behalf of everyone who would believe so that we could have confidence, so that we could have assurance of salvation. Well, when we turn to the Bible and we look for the active obedience of Christ, when we look for him upholding God's law on our behalf his representative obedience. You don't have to look very far. You don't have to look very far, even when it comes to titles. First John chapter two, verse one, Jesus Christ, the righteous, Jesus Christ, the law upholder, Jesus Christ, the one who obeys Jesus Christ, the righteous. I love it. The righteous upholder of God's law. Galatians chapter four, verse Verses four and five, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. But now to get into the depth of things a little bit more, we can go to Matthew chapter five. Uh, we could also go to Matthew chapter three. We can go to Romans chapter five, Philippians chapter three. Uh, there are many texts to go to Old Testament as well, but maybe for the sake of this episode, this podcast, uh, let's at least dig in a little bit uh, to Matthew chapter three. So when John the baptizer called people to repentance and for a baptism of repentance, God through John required that people obey. Therefore, Jesus insisted upon obeying, given that he was acting representatively. This is why Jesus said, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That's Matthew chapter three, verse 15. If Jesus, think with me, if you would, if Jesus had been obeying as a private individual, John would have been right to refuse in verse 14, but Jesus was obeying representatively. 
And we will see just how important this is, given that some opponents of the act of obedience of Christ claim that Jesus obeyed, but only to qualify himself to be the sinless Savior. It's certainly not the case. So there, there's one text that's important. Uh, we could look at Matthew chapter 5. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. So he does what the law requires. That would be another text. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Uh, that would be a good one to look at as well. But let's move on now for today uh, on the Pactum. We're going to look at Romans chapter 5. I'm curious to know where, as an aside, where, where are you listening? I like to think in terms of Pactum listeners probably digest the Pactum like I digest other podcasts. Uh, maybe you're mowing the yard to the glory of God. Maybe you're working. Hopefully you're doing your job as well. Maybe you're driving somewhere or exercising. Uh, those are the kinds of things I like to do when I'm listening to podcasts uh, because it's a way of kind of accomplishing two things at once. Or maybe, maybe you're super super committed as a Pactum listener, and you're just sitting there with your eyes closed, thinking deeply about getting very sleepy now, because I'm trying to hypnotize you with sound doctrine. No, don't need to do that. I want to have your mind turned on fully and completely fully energized. Romans 5, does it get better than Romans 5? Uh, I don't think it gets much better than Romans 5. I was once told that you can tell a serious Bible student based upon how worn their Bible is in Romans chapter 5. And I've repeated that often, and I kind of like that statement. But once someone helped me to understand Romans 5 better, uh, it almost became easy to think it through. And so I, I want to give my life to helping people to understand Romans 5 so that they love Romans 5 and their Bible is worn out in Romans 5, but not because it's so amazingly difficult to understand. In Romans 5.19, uh, Romans 5.19 declares that by the one man's obedience, let's stress, stress that, the many will be made righteous. So in other, in other words, it is through the representative obedience of Jesus that believing sinners gain the status of being righteous before God. Therefore, God is both, quote, not counting their trespasses against them. Quote, unquote, 2 Corinthians 5.19. So trespasses aren't counted against us. That's the negative, so to speak, because the penalty has been paid, right? And the believing sinner is also, also, also made righteous, quote, unquote, before God because of the, quote, obedience of Jesus, Romans 5.19. So the obedience of Jesus brings us righteousness because he, in fact, is the righteous. Now, some have, some have objected to the use of Romans 5 to support the active obedience of Christ's doctrine because of verse 18. They would say that Romans 8, 5.18 limits the obedience because it says one act. One act. And so we are told that the one act is limited to the, any guesses? It's limited to the cross. Well, there are a couple of problems with this. The first problem with the protest that isn't Protestant, by the way, the first problem with the protest is that the most capable adherents of the active obedience of Christ believe that the cross is in view because they believe that the whole life of Jesus, including his actions on the cross to be positive, vicarious in place of substitutionary obedience. So absolutely the cross is in view. Uh, the one act includes the cross, but it's not 
only the cross. In fact, we who adhere to the act of obedience of Christ's doctrine, we believe that the climactic and greatest act of obedience occurred at his death. So death includes active obedience. We're not saying we're not separating those two only for study, but we're saying you have active and passive throughout his life, active and passive on the cross because there's positive adherence and there is also suffering. This is why Philippians chapter two, verse eight says, and I alluded to it already, that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even so climactically, not only even death on a cross. A second problem with the limiting one act to the cross is that the interpretation contradicts other things that are explicitly taught in Romans regarding justification and the justifying work of Jesus. For example, and this is important, for example, the death of Jesus is said to justify, right? The death of Jesus is said to justify chapter five, verse nine. But then again, in chapter four, verse 25, it is the resurrection of Jesus that justified. So, so which of these one acts, if you will, is it? The answer is, it is obviously both as each is essential to the justifying work of Jesus, which is in fact a whole. It is most reasonable, therefore, to understand one act of obedience as Paul is speaking in a summarizing manner of all that Jesus did and, and as including his act of obedience of fulfilling the law for sinners. So I get animated about this, even in my own basement, in my office, recording this episode, and hopefully in your earbuds or headphones or through your speakers. Thank you for so much for listening because it's important and opposition uh, seems to be very limited in its perspective. Romans five, Christ's obedience. We can look at his whole obedience as a one act of obedience and see that he obeys so we can have a righteous status before God. Otherwise, we couldn't have a righteous status before God. Okay, let's look at one more text today, and then we'll sign off until our next Lone Ranger installment of the Pactum before we return to some episodes uh, with Mike Grimes. So one final text would be Philippians chapter 3. We've referenced Philippians chapter 2 already, but Philippians 3 is important because it deals with the imputation of Christ's righteousness to the believing sinner. And so it's most fitting to think about the act of obedience of Christ because the two are inseparable. That's why R.C. said, uh, we do miss R.C. as the hashtag, hashtag says. Uh, R.C. would say, I want to call myself an imputationist. And he's talking about the vital doctrine of the active obedience of Christ. So Paul describes himself as, in, this is in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Here, Paul acknowledges himself to be the one who lacks righteousness as he has not obeyed God's law as required. He instead has righteousness, how? Given by God through trusting in Christ. Where does the righteousness of Christ come from? Two sources provide the answer. First, the meaning of righteousness is upholding or adherence to law. We've already covered that. So it comes from obedience. So it is that by believing in Jesus, 
that God credits Paul with the righteousness of Christ, which is the result of Christ's obedience to the law. This is straightforward and absolutely affirms the reality of the active obedience of Christ. And secondly, chapter 2 of Philippians only reinforces such an understanding, right? It informs us that Jesus, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 8, it is because of what Jesus does representatively as a human he, he is the God-man, but oftentimes people who don't affirm the act of obedience of Christ have a very weak understanding of Jesus' humanity. Maybe more about that in another episode. But he's the God-man, and he definitely is a human being doing these things on behalf of, wait for it, human beings, because he's represented, representing human beings. So it is because of what Jesus does representatively as the God-man, I'm going to emphasize that, and for us men and women, that believing sinners can stand righteous before God. Well, hopefully that's a good sampling of biblical texts that would have to do with imputation of righteousness. So we have righteousness credited to us, obedience to God's law, which is what God requires for eternal life based upon what Jesus says. It's credited to us. How is it credited to us? It's credited to us by faith. When we rest in Christ, when we trust in Christ, God provides this wonderful imputation, this wonderful crediting uh, into our spiritual bank account, if you will. We're credited with Christ's righteousness, so there's, there is real righteousness involved. Therefore, because there is real righteousness involved, what? God can maintain his justice and declare us righteous, even though we're not, because we're believing in Jesus Christ, the righteous. Thank you for tuning in today. I hope it's been edifying. I'm looking forward to our next episode when we can consider objections, when we can consider history, who has believed this, who has not believed this, maybe a little bit more as to why we should be believing this. But until next time, may the Lord bless you abundantly as you consider the fact that Jesus is in fact our great savior who takes away our sin and provides the perfect righteousness that God requires. May all praise and honor and glory be to him. Looking forward to being with you again next time on The Pactum. Pactum.